0: We certainly are again offered the opportunity and blessing by the God of heaven on this evening, this first day of the week's afternoon, together on an occasion like this one, and to open the Word of God together, to turn our attention by way of song and prayer, the other things in which we've engaged, to encourage and to get this week off to the start that would not only be pleasing to God, but would be encouraging, and to set you and me in the right attitude for the things that will come before us uh, this, this very week. We continue tonight in our study of the New Testament book of Hebrews, and as you can see, we've already reached the fifth installment in that series as well. On Sunday mornings, our eighth installment today of that premillennialistic series, and now tonight, the fifth installment of the Hebrew letter. And all the while, as we have continued this study, we have found a number of rather encouraging things already. It still is certainly fair to say that the book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement, and I think we each could well agree. We certainly need that from time to time. Even the the best of each of us appreciate that there are days and occasions and times when encouragement is useful, vital, and certainly something that can help put us on our way to a clearer and more powerful living for the God of Heaven. And yet, in this book, as we have looked at those first-century Christians who were of Hebrew, who were of Hebrew background but who nonetheless were sorely tempted to leave Christ and to revert to Judaism, they were admonished to think carefully what they were thinking about doing and to in fact not give in to that temptation, but to cling closely to the Christ and to never forsake him for anything or anyone else. To that extent, we noticed in the first lesson, An introduction to this book, an introduction to the better way of Christ. And that word better was a key word in the book of Hebrews, wasn't it? Better promises, better covenant, better Savior, better high priest, better law. All of that, as we appreciate the betterment of it, led us to the second lesson. The first three verses of chapter 1 highlighted Christ's superiority to the prophets. As notable and as noteworthy as they may have been, They were far surpassed by the greatness of the Christ, what he offered, what he makes available, and what you and I have through him. In the next lesson, we noticed his superiority to the angels. In fact, the balance of chapter 1 set before us how many times in the Old Testament it was quoted that things were applied to Christ that were never said about or to any angel. That brought us to the lesson last week. We noticed in chapter 2 another aspect of the Lord's superiority to the angels. In chapter 1, it was his divinity. In chapter 2, it's his humanity. All of that has prepared us for chapter 3. In fact, as we have looked at the guidance set before us by way of reminder, the guidance offered by Jesus, let us look in chapter 3 and find Jesus' superiority to somebody else. It isn't the angels that will be the topic of this chapter. If you begin reading with me in chapter 3, the first six verses, in fact, read so powerfully as one unit. Let's read that as you read along with me and notice the element that's set before us about the Lord's superiority this time. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more glory than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after." but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confession and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Pausing there, again, is a nice dividing point in, in this chapter. We've already seen a particular man mentioned more than once, Moses. And immediately brought to our mind is the powerful fact that Christ is superior not only to the prophets, not only to the angels, also to Moses. And that'll be the first element, the first segment of our lesson this evening. What are the, the points that the Hebrew writer makes as we give thought to the Lord's superiority to the man named Moses? First of all, we might well notice chapter 3 verse 1. You'll note the very tender, the very compassionate, the very endearing way that that chapter begins. After forcefully and powerfully reminding them of the Lord's superiority to the angels and to the prophets, he begins by calling them holy brethren. And he refers to them as those who are partakers of the heavenly calling. This Hebrew writer had not given up on them. Though they may have been in the throes of persecution and in a circumstance of being sorely tempted to forsake the Christ and to revert to Judaistic matters, nonetheless here they are entreated as holy brethren. They are referred to as those who are partakers of the heavenly calling. This Hebrew writer was thus very much interested in their eternal well-being. He had not cast them off and given them no hope. He had not affirmed that in fact you have reached the point in decision to forsake the Christ they were still making their mind up. And he thus referred to them in this very loving fashion. You and I can thus be mindful that when a person is in the dire straits of decision and often in the throes of perhaps on the verge of apostasy, it may be well to approach them in the strings of love and compassion and remind them of what they would be losing in the fellowship with God, the fellowship with the Christ, and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly there are times for direct boldness when there's error to be faced. But sometimes truly, just as we remember that Paul approached Peter in love and the Lord approached his disciples often with almost tears on his face, mindful of what they were about to face. So to hear it seems the Hebrew writer understood that that was the better approach this time as well. Who is the central figure of these verses? Verse 1 ends with these words, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. No doubt as he has already mentioned the Christ from a number of vantage points, now he directly calls him the apostle. And he calls him the high priest. No doubt to those who were of Jewish background and who knew the Old Testament scriptures, They were well acquainted with the office of the high priest, what that person did, what their office was, how they conducted their business. Also, the thought of an apostle rings loudly and clearly for you and for me. I've asked us to give some thought about the notes of what that might entail. The word apostle literally from the Greek text means one who is sent. That is to say, a person with a mission, a particular message and a task that is sent and brought. Recall that the Lord handpicked twelve apostles, those whom He gave a message that they were to take. And certainly, after His passing, after He died at Calvary and ascended back to the Father, they were the ones that carried that message first. They were the ones who stood up on Pentecost and preached that message. Notice here, Jesus is called the Apostle, and it's a capital A, isn't it? He is the central one who had a message from God, and he brought it to earth and gave it to us. Now true, he delegated those 12 apostles to continue that work, but it was the Lord who was dispatched from the Heavenly Father and brought that marvelous message of salvation to you and to me. True enough, the Apostle. But what's more, he's called the High Priest, of our profession. The notion of high priest and the Lord's priesthood will be a central topic in chapters 7, 8, and 9. And so we'll have frequent occasion to cast a spotlight on that topic here in just a few weeks. For now, might we notice, at least in passing way, that the notion of the high priest is a significant one indeed. The high priest, to put it bluntly, was that particular official who officiated over the very nature of the people's sacrifices, if you please, unto God. Remember, he alone had the opportunity to enter the most holy place once a year. Only he could do that, Leviticus 16. And yet here we find Christ is called our high priest today. You and I have a priesthood. Christ is the high priest as we thus appreciate that it's through Him that we can approach God and no other. We can't approach Him simply on our terms. He is our mediator. He is the one who in fact brings us nearer to God. He is the one whose message is that central feature and the one about whom, of course, not only is He head, He is the foundation of all that you and I can ever be in Christianity. The thought then of setting that man before these people Notice how quickly he turns the attention to Moses. Speaking of Christ, he was faithful, verse 2, to him that appointed him. The fact is a simple one, isn't it? Christ was exactly faithful to every work and every mission and every objective that God had sent him to earth to accomplish. He always did the Father's will, John 4, 34. In fact, we later read in John seven, as well as John eight, and I've listed some passages for your thinking. In John eight twenty nine, Jesus himself said, "I always do those things that please Him," the Him referring to God. You notice also in that same set of verses in Matthew three seventeen, the very admission of the Father on the occasion of the Lord's baptism. He there made the interesting statement, not in that place to hear ye him, but he affirmed that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus carried out the will of the Father. He executed perfectly the plan of redemption. And in that perfect execution, you'll notice, indeed Christ was faithful to him who in fact had appointed him. Now is where he introduces Moses in such a consistent and systematic way as also Moses was faithful in all his house. To a person that was a Jew, there were few Old Testament characters that would stand any higher than Moses. After all, he was the one who God called to ascend Sinai and it was he that God gave that law first. It was Moses who in fact distributed it to the people. It was Moses who, in fact, led them through 40 years of wilderness wandering. And often, despite their grumbling and complaining, it was Moses who nonetheless brought them to the very brink of the promised land. In fact, on the occasion of Moses' death, the children of Israel were encamped on the eastern side of the Jordan River and just across the river, there was the promised land. He led them, in fact, from Egypt, the land of bondage, all the way to the very border of the land of Canaan. Moses truly was a monumental figure in Judaism. And now the Hebrew writer chooses to use him and show that Christ is even greater than he was. That would have been a very powerful lesson to any Jew. Notice the way it's stated with me. Verse 3. As surely as affirming that Moses was faithful in all his house, the next affirmation, for this man, namely Christ, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. There isn't a one of us within the sound of my voice that would doubt the simple factual statement of verse 3. You and I can look upon a construction like this building and no doubt it has a nice purpose that it serves. It allows us to meet in comfort and in a sense of protection from the elements outside, and no doubt many gentlemen labored as they brought the reality of this construction to its completion. But yet, may we ask, is it not a simple fact that the person who drew the blueprints and those who did the work are greater than the house itself? For it took intellect, it took decision-making, and the opportunity to bring it together in the proper sequence and in the proper way the house could not have built itself. That simple fact is the comparison that was used in the text before us. In exactly that same way, Christ is greater than Moses. By the same context of Christ, just as surely as the builder is greater than the house, so too Christ is greater than Moses. As he develops that thought more carefully, verse 4 states it in words like this. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. That's one of the strongest elements in, found in all the Word of God to the truth about the error of general evolution. You and I are so often reminded and taught that somehow, at least from the perspective of some, this world just came about. It happened on its own without any fingerprints of any higher power. But yet it is a self-evident fact that every house was built by somebody. A house cannot build itself. Far less could this universe have constructed itself. It simply could not have been. It flies in the face of every element of logic and every element of scientific discovery. Things that evidence design must have had a designer whether that be the universe that you and I look upon, whether it be the human bodies that we're blessed to have, whether it be other matters, if there is design in place, there must have been a designer. The Hebrew writer puts that in in these words, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And thus might you and I appreciate that just as surely as this text has reminded us, Christ is greater thus than Moses, Because of what he is about to explain, you and I should appreciate that even in every other matter, again, be it scientific or otherwise, when there is design, there must have been an intelligence behind it doing the designing. So much so that in verse 5, Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. And that little phrase, as a servant, is so very critical. One can certainly agree that Moses accomplished many things as he carried out God's commandments. We've been studying on Sunday morning how that he stood before the Pharaoh and pronounced, let my people go, speaking for God. He was the very servant of the God of heaven. As we shall find later in our studies of the Exodus, it was again he who distributed those laws to the people. It was he on so many occasions who pleaded on the people's behalf for God. Might we also notice, speaking about Moses, verse number 5, all that being said, he still was a servant. But you'll notice this account was accomplished for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Moses, you see, peered down the stream of time because he was a prophet like a greater prophet that was to come one day after him. We notice in Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15, a statement where Moses directly affirmed and prophesied to Israel, there's coming a prophet after me who will be greater than I. And as Moses made that statement, he of course was prophesying about the coming Jesus. Later we find in Acts the third chapter that Peter quoted that verbatim and applied it to Christ. Moses was prophesying about the coming Christ. And it was he who well knew that Christ would be greater than he. The continuance of verse 6 perhaps summarizes these opening verses so very greatly. For it says, but Christ as a son over his own house. Might we note the distinction Moses was a servant in the house. Christ was a son over the house. He owned the house. The house belongs to him. Moses was just a servant in the house. That distinction is so very vital because notice, who is the house over which Christ rules and reigns? The Hebrew writer is so very specific. He says, whose house are we? you and i comprise the house over which christ reigns and the house over which he rules it is the church that lovely body of which we read about in hebrews 12 last lord's day evening that house over which christ reigns is affirmed in a very conditional fashion near the close of verse 6 Just as surely as those of the first century needed to know this condition, you and I must also note it today. It says, whose house are we if? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That little word if. So much is embodied in that little text and in that little word. The word if makes something conditional, doesn't it? I will go to the store tomorrow if it doesn't rain. Thus, we affirm that that activity is predicated upon the condition stated by the words that follow the word "if." Here, notice how important faithfulness is. He said, "Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope firm unto the end?" Those Hebrew Christians needed to know if you forsake the Christ, if you turn back to the old law of Moses, if you strive to offer sacrifices and beseech God in that fashion, you are not a part of his house any longer. You have forsaken the Christ, and he will thus not be the one reigning over you. Notice the elements and membership in that house are very exclusive. Whose house are we? if we hold the confidence and rejoicing of our faith firm into the end. There have been some who have stated that Hebrews chapter 3 is a masterpiece of perseverance. Few chapters in the book of God will encourage perseverance in your life and mind better than Hebrews chapter 3 because it sets before us what we lose if we fail to, stay, to stand fast and if we leave the truth of God. Beginning in verse number 7, we have the inspired writer's emphasis on these thoughts from another angle. Verse 7 begins with the word, wherefore. Thus, it builds upon that which has just preceded it. Oftentimes, that word means the same as therefore. It is a continuation of the thought, but it draws a conclusion. Verses 7 through 11 fit together. Let's note those together as we read them. they shall not enter into my rest. We have noted then in the statements on the screen before us some of these thoughts that tell us about the quotation of these Old Testament passages. Keeping in mind that the book of Hebrews was written again to these individuals who were somewhat familiar with and quite likely very familiar with the Old Testament, these quotations of the Old Testament would have meant a very, very great deal to them. And so, verse 7, as the Holy Ghost saith, interesting little conclusion you and I might be able to draw here. In our day and time, there are some who are quick to tell us that this book to which you and I look and this book to which we have great confidence is a book of stories and fables and myths that men over the centuries have thrown together. Interestingly, verse 7 says, who wrote this? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, and might we notice that in the verses that follow is a direct quotation from Psalm 95, and hence, who actually wrote the 95th Psalm? You and I may ascribe it to David as the person who perhaps held the pen, but notice the Holy Ghost was the one doing the writing. We have before us a text described in words like this. In Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost moving those men to write what they wrote is affirmed in this passage you and I have just read in verse 7 of Hebrews 3. But it goes on from there to say, Today... "...if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness." And immediately the Hebrew writer takes us in our thinking back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. You'll notice that it says, "...today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness." As the children of Israel meandered their way through the wilderness wandering, how often did they exhibit unbelief? And how often did they exhibit, in fact, less than confidence in God's ability to deliver them and lead them to where they needed to go? In Numbers chapter 11, there was at least some group of them who affirmed, Let's make us a captain and go back to Egypt. Can you believe it? These people who had not many days before seen the waters of the Red Sea parted and they'd seen ten plagues rained upon the people of Egypt and they had seen water brought out of a rock and they'd seen quails knee-deep around the camp and they had seen manna given to them six days a week faithfully, year after year. They were nonetheless anxious to go back to Egypt. Where was their faith? It's no wonder God said in verse 10, This people grieved me. They grieved me with that generation. Sometimes you and I can take a very great lesson about God's long-suffering and patience with that people. I suspect if you and I had been in the position of God and be like you and I are, we would have destroyed that people hands down. They're disbelieving, complaining, grumbling, displeasing self, all that they were given but they couldn't be satisfied. Perhaps here notice what the Hebrew writer reminds the people of that day. You too don't need to be a grief to God. You need to exhibit faithfulness. Rather than apostatize, you should cling closer to Him. You need to not allow the temptations and persecutions of the world to lead you to behave in a way to where you leave the Christ. For after all, He still died for you. Those kinds of thoughts, notice in verse 8, harden not your hearts. Who has the final say in the hardening of a person's heart? No one can harden your heart or mine for us. It's our choice. If my heart is hard, it's because I chose to harden it. If your heart is hard, it's because you have chosen to harden it and to turn an obstinate eye toward the things God has revealed. Note the writer said, harden not your hearts. May we take great heed to that warning and ever have a heart that's tender, ever willing to respond properly to what God has said, but not to be defensive and to thus get angry and mad at God. He only says these things because He loves us. And if my life is not in harmony with this. It's not God's fault. It's mine. And I need to be reprimanded and rebuked and reproved so that I can make proper correction before the day of judgment. Thus, the writer here affirms at verse 9, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, oh, what that people saw. And yet, they nonetheless, God says, they tempted me, they grieved me, they proved me, They didn't often exhibit belief, but rather unbelief. And perhaps what text better relays that than Numbers chapters 13 and 14? At that point, the children of Israel had been two years into the wilderness wandering. They had left Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, and for two years they had begun their wandering, and they had arrived at the southern boundary of the promised land. They could perhaps even see it in the distance from the mountain known as Kadesh Barnea. However, what happened? The people sent spies into the land. Ten of them came back and said, this is the land without a doubt. It's fertile, it's good. It is exactly what we've been told. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But guess what? They're like like, like grasshoppers before them. We cannot take it. God said, you disbelieving people, for your disbelief, you're going to wander 38 more years in this wilderness. They could have entered that promised land in two years, and yet for 38 more, they would wander until all of them 20 years of age and older were dead. Because of your disbelief, you're not going to enter that land. You're going to wander here until your carcasses are strewn over the wilderness of sin. And then that next generation perhaps will be better able and better ready to believe what I have to say. What's the lesson in that for you and for me? It's all summed up in verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. God had a rest prepared for that people. It was the land of Canaan. A land of, if we should say it this way, milk and honey as it's described in the Old Testament. And God had entitled it to them. It's yours if you'll believe me and do what I say. But yet, because you didn't believe me, because rather you responded in disbelief and grieving and proving me, you will not enter that rest. And they didn't. Out of 603,550 fighting men that left Egypt, two entered Canaan. Two out of 603,550. That doesn't sound like a large percentage, does it? And in fact, it isn't. Doesn't that remind us today about how that God means what he says and he says what he means? When he demanded obedience and faithfulness in them, he demands no less in us today. We thus should appreciate that if we ever expect to enter the grand rest of God, we must in fact behave far better than most of the times the Israelites did. And so in verses 12 on to verse 19, we reach the final section of this chapter. And as we look at it, it is an application of what we've learned so far this evening in many ways. Let's read that and then make some comments about it. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned? whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that is an amazing lesson for you and me today. You see the children of Israel, in the fact that so many of them never entered the promised land, and yet they had left Egypt to enter it but they stumbled along the way because of disbelief. The same thing can happen to you and me today. We may leave the world of sin and sorrow in baptism. We may enter Christ and know the joy and taste the goodness of being a Christian, but we can fall by the way just like they did. We can fall into apostasy and disbelief and improper living and fail to enter the rest just like they failed to enter it. That's the entire point of the latter part of this chapter. And it's a point well taken, isn't it? Especially in a world where some are quick to tell us, once a person's saved, they can't be lost. You almost have to rip out Hebrews 3 of your Bible to find any element like that, for this counters that in every regard. Just like they didn't enter the rest, so too we may not. And we won't if we are not faithful unto the end that particular set of challenges, if you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it certainly can well be a very, very short trip and a short step indeed from hardness of heart to full-blown apostasy. That's why the warning of verse number 12 is so very important. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Might we notice That warning would make no sense if it were impossible for a person to fall from grace. But the writer says, take heed, emphasizing it is possible. We must ever be cautious and careful to not allow our thoughts to be those that simply follow the wayward things of man. Take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Notice that departing from the living God is affirmed thus to be an evil thing. These Hebrews needed to know if you leave Christ, you're committing evil. You're departing from the very God who does live and who is very well aware of what you are doing. And thus in verse 13, how can we counter that? Today, how can we counter it? He says, exhort one another daily. That's one of the things that's so marvelous about the church, isn't it? You and I are able to exhort each other. When someone perhaps is down, we can shed tears with each other. When there's celebration to take place, we can rejoice one with the other. We read that in Romans 12, verses 14 to 16. Here as we exhort each other, one of the things that is the work of the church is edification. Edification the ways that you and I can exhort each other in our daily walk of life. That may be as simple as a gentle smile to let someone know who's hurting that my prayers are with you, my thoughts are with you. It may be someone who is enduring a great, great burden. Pick up the phone and just to let them know that I'm thinking about you. Perhaps a card we can send through the mail. When we come together, just a very sincere, how are you doing? All those things are ways you and I can exhort each other. And that's apart from the Scriptures. What better way to hold high the Bible for somebody and say, don't you lose heart. I know you're going through a difficult time, but don't you give up. God still loves you and I do too. And I just want you to know that if I can do anything to help you, let me know, please. As we exhort each other, it seems that amongst the Hebrews, they had failed to do that. We're going to learn that in chapter 10. They had stopped exhorting each other. We aren't islands to ourselves. We're members of the blood-bought body of Christ. We're able to enjoy fellowship one with the other. Not only that, but of course fellowship with God and with His Son. As we see verse 13, we notice that lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That deceitfulness of sin can be an overwhelming thing. And especially to those who are weak, they can find themselves engrossed in sin so very swiftly and quickly. And those who are more mature perhaps need to be ready to encourage them and to warn them, don't you be deceived by that thing that sin is. It looks very different than what it really is. You will be engrossed by it and it will doom your soul. You need to be faithful. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. That's one of the reasons the attendance at all the services is so vital. Bible studies, Sunday and Wednesday, all the services on Sunday. For here are brethren who are attempting to be strong and who desire to know more of the will of God and to associate with individuals like that is one way that's one strong rung on that ladder of remaining faithful. For there's where we get exhortation. In addition, we see in verse 14... For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. There's again that word if again. They were admonished to be steadfast ever and always and you and I must thus, if we're to be pleasing to God, do the same. It is to be noted in verse 15, another quotation, it's a repeat of verse 7 to emphasize the point. When God says something twice, You and I should take careful note. Verse 15 then says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Sometimes we use that as a part of the invitation. As a preacher will come near the close of his lesson, he'll say, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Here's where he's getting it. Just as surely as those Hebrews were warned, this very day have a heart that's tender, ever ready and willing to respond in submission to the things of God. Don't harden your heart. That lesson is just as needful today as, of course, it was then. God's grief is shown again in verse 17, or rather verses 16 and 17. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. You see, those children of Israel that left Egypt, they had heard what God through Moses had told them but that still didn't stop them from being rebellious. Today, despite the fact you and I can hear what this book says, we might hear a preacher talk about it, and we might hear a Bible study teacher refer to it. We have to apply it ourselves. Just to hear it alone is not enough. In fact, the Lord warned of that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? And thus we notice in verse 17, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with those that had sinned? Amongst that very group that had heard the Word of God, they chose to be rebellious and they chose to sin and God was grieved with them and they died before reaching Canaan. Isn't that a grand lesson for us then as we close that chapter and close our lesson tonight? In fact, it is summed up in verses 18 and 19 in language like this. Perhaps as we look at some of the way that fate is thus listed for us, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? And it's interesting that the Greek words that are present literally at the end of that verse, verse 18, are these, but to them that were disobedient. One can't escape the necessity of obedience. Just a feeling in my mind is not enough. God demands a faithful obedience to that which He has affirmed. And those who did not obey, He classifies here, you'll notice, as being unbelieving. Any person, despite what they say, if they don't subscribe in obedience to that which is affirmed, they do not believe, again, despite what they may say. And so the chapter so swiftly closes. In verse 19, so we see, that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So if you and I are ever asked, why were so many of the children of Israel not those that entered Egypt? Simply stated, it's because of unbelief. They didn't enter in because of their unbelief. And as we're going to see in chapter 4 next Sunday night, why will so many not enter heaven? Because of their unbelief. In fact, that is a segue to the next chapter. It leads right into it. But I thought that was a good place to divide it. So we'll start with chapter 4, verse 1, next Sunday evening. And we'll apply that to our journey toward heaven. And ask what thus is important for us as we strive to enter into that great rest of God described in chapter 4 as heaven itself. This very night, what about your life and what about mine? In giving some thought to the stirring reminders of perseverance that we have seen this evening. May we cling ever more closely to Jesus. May we be more determined to, in fact, cling closely and never allow anything to come between us and what He would find pleasing for our lives. These Hebrews were allowing many things to come between them and God. May you and I be wiser. May we be stronger. May we be more determined than that. And so tonight, what about your life and what about mine? There's an opportunity in just a moment as we stand and sing to make a response. Perhaps there's one or more in the sound of my voice that is in need of public response. Perhaps because you've never become a Christian. Though the fact is you know what the Lord did for you, you have never relinquished control of your life to Him. Why do you delay? Just as we read a moment ago, today if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. If, on the other hand, you have known what it is to be a Christian, but you no longer are a faithful one, you've maybe brought disgrace to His name and to the church, you need to make that right tonight. If those things have been public in character, let us pray with you and for you. If you've never been a Christian, as we mentioned, you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His great name, and be baptized. And if tonight we can help in either of those ways, won't you let it be known for together we stand and while we sing.